And let's turn again in our Bibles to the Old Testament prophet Malachi. We're in Malachi chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament, the last to speak before the silence and anticipation of the Messiah. I'll be reading from the NIV. That's the translation that's there in the Pew Bibles in front of you. So you can find our passage on page 949. Knock, knock. Wait, wait, wait. Why do you respond that way? Well, it's because you know that as soon as I say knock, knock, that a joke is coming. Because the very form of the joke helps establish the context, what we're doing. Malachi comes in a question and answer format, but tragically, it's not a joke. But the form helps us understand what's happening here. God offers a truth, the people question it, well, that can't be right, and then God responds by confirming the truth of what he's announced. And so this is the second disputation, that's the rhetorical term, to describe a truth, question, answer, structure. It, it begins in, in chapter 1, verse 6. It would actually make more sense if Malachi, instead of being four chapters long, were six chapters long, and this started chapter 2. But remember, Malachi, he, he gives us the oracles, but he didn't give us the numbering system that we have. So the second disputation begins here in chapter 1, verse 6. Now, some of you feel cheated because I didn't finish the joke, right? Knock, knock. Abraham Lincoln. Oh, come on. You guys don't know who Abe Lincoln is? All right. I didn't promise that knock-knock jokes were funny. I just was giving them to us as a way to understand the form of questions and answers. Because the questions that Malachi addresses are much more serious. Last week, when God said, I have loved you, they asked, but how have you loved us? And this week, they wonder, how have we your chosen people shown contempt for you. Listen as I read Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9. Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You placed defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun, and every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. 
but you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the King, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble." You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Let me pray that God would apply the truth of his word to our lives. Father, as we listen to your condemnation of the people and the priests at the time of Malachi, Lord, we can either turn toward you in recognition of our sin, asking for forgiveness, or we can turn from you in pride and arrogance, thinking that we, unlike they, need no help. And so, Lord, make us a people who are humble enough to ask for your blessing, humble enough to receive it by faith alone, putting our trust in you as our rescuer, our savior, our king. Lord, let us find in your word the provision to meet our needs, the provision that provides forgiveness for our sins through Jesus, our Savior, we pray in his name. Amen. I hate going to church. Church is frustrating and boring. It's full of hypocrites who are just going through the motions. It's a cosmic waste of time. Perhaps that's how you'd expect somebody who has deconstructed his or her faith to respond. Somebody who has been at church but then walked away. Uh, or maybe somebody who has resisted church her whole life. A, a famous atheist perhaps saying, I hate church. Or maybe that's even how you feel today. Maybe as a student dragged here by uh, praying parents and grandparents. I hate going to church. It feels like a waste of time. But Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid suggests that this is the summary of the shocking message that God delivers in this passage. Because of the sin of his people, because of the failure of the priests, it's as if God himself says, I hate going to church. Like one of those giant billboard signs that gives you a message signed by God. But this one in big white letters says, I hate going to church to church. If they're going to act like this, then I might as well shut the doors. Well, that's what God says in verse 10 of Malachi chapter 1. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors 
so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. Their sin is so great that even God himself despises attending worship services. A closed temple, the doors shut, the gates locked, would be better than the people's worthless worship. Because what have they done? They have brought defiled sacrifices. They've brought animals to be offered on the altar that were crippled, diseased, sick. Animals that are not acceptable substitutes for atonement. Because that's what the sacrificial system of the temple worship was to do. You brought an animal that died in your place, the shedding of blood, so that you would not pay the full price for your sins. A frequent reminder. Daily sacrifices offered in the temple. But the sacrifices were supposed to be pure and perfect. A lamb without blemish. And God says, but that's not what you were doing. You are bringing the leftovers from your flock. The diseased animals you'd have to kill off anyway. The ones that you'd have to cull from the herd. That's what you're bringing to worship. God says, a son wouldn't treat his father this way. Look back at verse 6. A son's response to his father should be to give him honor. A servant's response to a master is to give honor. And God says, if I am your father... That's the language that we've heard in the Old Testament. God describing himself as the father of his people. He says, then where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Worship provides a way for the people to be reconciled with God. They bring a sacrifice that that dies in their place so that their sins can be taken away. And so they should honor God with the best of what they had. He says, he says in verse 8, if you, if you showed up and brought a gift to the governor, he wouldn't accept this junk from you, a diseased animal that you can't even serve at the, the table. And, and, and remember, at this time, a governor is just a lowly government official here in this outpost of a province. I mean, imagine being in the courts of Persia with a real king with power. You don't dare walk in with a diseased animal. Your very life would be at risk. And God is saying, that's, that's what's happening here. Your very life is at risk. Your spiritual life is at risk when you bring crippled and diseased animals. Because God himself deserves our best. That the sacrifice actually cost us something. Because in our rebellion of sin, we have turned away from God. And Malachi shows us the worthiness of God, the weight, the authority of God in this passage. J- just notice the, the phrase that's used repeatedly when God speaks. Look, look back at verse 6. He says, If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. That's God's covenant name, Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord of the angel armies. It's repeated 11 times in the 18 verses that I read to you. So that if you forgot who you were talking to, it's Yahweh, 
the one with all power and authority, the one who rescued you from your sin and Egypt. God of the angel armies stands before you to speak to you, and you treat him with contempt. Over and over again, we're reminded just in that phrase, says the Lord Almighty. You see it in verse 6, and then repeated at the end of verse 8, says the Lord Almighty. It's repeated again at the end of verse 9, says the Lord Almighty. In verse 10, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 11, says the Lord Almighty again and again, so that we feel the weight of the power and the authority of the one who stands before us. We listen to Malachi not because of his greatness. We don't know anything about him. We listen because he is the messenger of God himself. God who is described in this passage, look at verse 14, as the great king. He says, cursed is the cheat who is an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then, then switches it out as if I wouldn't notice, says the Lord Almighty. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. When God calls himself a great king, He's not just saying, like, among all the kings, like, you know, like, I'm probably, like, in the better half of kings that are around. You know, like, I'm, I'm in that echelon of, you know, really good kings. Like, I'm, you know, like, I'm on the king all-star team. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am great among the kings. I am great over all the kings. I am the king of kings, the creator of the ends of the earth. It's a claim of authority over all powers. He is the one whose name will be known and honored, even feared, among the nations. Verse 14 there, then, is really just a repetition of what, of what we saw back in verse 11. The universal authority of God that his name will be great among all nations. But the people will not acknowledge God's worth. They can bring him flawed sacrifices, because they've willingly ignored God's commands. They've devalued who he is. Why would I spend my best on him? His worth is small. And thankfully, you weren't asked to bring in an animal with you today. One, because I would make a terrible priest. First of all, a kid with the last name Kozlowski is clearly not from the tribe of Levi. But second, those of you that know me know that like just the thought of blood like makes me like wobbly in the knees. So I'd be a terrible priest. But this place would be a mess. Daily sacrifice of, of animals. And so you think, well, you know, I mean, have at it, Malachi. I mean, go for it. I mean, tell those people the bad sacrifices they brought. Because like I'm definitely off the hook here. I have never once brought a diseased lamb to church. I mean, I've had cutout lambs. I've had little lambs on popsicle sticks for, for children's lessons, but I've never brought a diseased lamb to church, so I'm off the hook. But do we treat God as if he is worth very little? I mean, just, just think of how you spend your time. One of the, the pastors whose commentaries I read asked this question of his congregation. If you had a, a whole day with no other responsibilities, what would you do? Like, what would you do? For some of you, you would say, well, I've been at work so much, I'm going to spend more time with my kids, with my grandkids. Like, I'm going to invest in them. Some of you were like, uh-uh, I spend more than enough time with my kids. I'm spending a day without my kids. Some of you are thinking, I could, could actually put in a little bit of that exercise I've been promising to, to get involved with. 
Maybe some of you would say, wait, a day without other responsibilities, like nothing new would be added? I'm just going to get work done to sort of get myself caught up. Or maybe you would sit on the couch and catch up on your favorite series. Or just take a really long nap. And some of those could be really good things. But do we value our time with God? Is he worth it? Does the book that you bring here on Sundays, like is this only a Sunday book? Is prayer a perfunctory uh, responsibility that happens right before you start eating but, but isn't really a pattern in your life? Is worship a priority in your schedule? Or, you know, if something better comes up, like I'll, any other offer rather than sitting here is, is probably better. And I, and I know. Like I'm preaching to those of you that are actually sitting here. Like that's one of the, 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 the constant challenges as a preacher is the people that I think need to hear the sermon aren't always here to hear the sermon. And so that's a responsibility for me of how I spend my time. Or think of the, the way that you spend your money. I mean, for the people of Israel, it's much cheaper to give God the leftovers of the flock. I mean, that diseased animal is going to have to be killed anyway. I mean, it was on its last legs. I mean, at least I'm doing something, right? I'm still showing up at the temple. I'm still giving God something. I mean, most of my neighbors, they're not even showing up. How is it that you spend your money, your wealth? I mean, some things we find it easy to spend money on, things that are important to me. I mean, they look stupid to you. You would say, why would you spend money on that? The things that some of you spend money on seem, seem silly to me. And some of the things we spend money on are, are valuable. Trips, experiences with family. But, but then when we think about money for the kingdom of God, we think, well, I mean, I might need that. Why would I be expected to give God the best of what I have for his church, for his kingdom, for his missionaries, for his name to be great? I mean, come on, how much is enough already, God? One commentator says, we're comfortable as long as God acts as a silent partner. Like, we'll let him in our lives. I mean, maybe even adds a little bit of spiritual prestige to our lives. He gives us this level of comfort. But as long as he doesn't actually say anything, I'm okay with God being around. I'll let him in my life as long as I get to keep doing things exactly the way I want to be doing things. God can be here, but he better keep his mouth shut. And so we treat God as if his commands aren't worth our attention. As if we say to God, God, you shouldn't have the right to tell me how to live, how to worship. I can find out what's comfortable for myself. How dare you, God, act like you know what's best for me? And so instead of trusting God's commands, when they make us uncomfortable in our culture, instead of trusting God's commands, we say, well, I can trust the winds of what my neighbors suggest. If it feels right, then it must be right. Because God isn't worth enough to listen to. But Malachi is shouting at us, bringing a message of the Lord Almighty. The Lord's worth deserves our praise. He is worthy. The people of Judah were to bring pure offerings because they know the depth of their sin. I need forgiveness 
from God, and so I will listen to the commands of God. I will take advantage with joy of the provisions of God. He offers me a way to be in right relationship, and so I'll do it with joy, bringing him my best. They were to understand his worth, because the best of what we have is worthy of God. And so God, in response to the sin of his people, the sin of the priests, curses them. God's response to their defiled offerings is to curse his people. Now, and when we use the word curse, I don't mean a magical charm that you learned in defense against the dark arts class. I mean God punishing you for your sin. At times, that's God just sort of stepping back and letting your actions take their logical consequences, that you bear the weight for your sin. At times, it's God intervening and pushing down upon you for your sin so that you feel its weight and turn from sin in response to him. A a curse from God is his determined response so that we can feel the pain of our rebellion. Look at verse 14. When the people have brought their injured, crippled, and diseased animals, God says, cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. You maybe even show up to the priest, let him examine it. And then, well, I mean, there are animals everywhere. I mean, it's, a, it's not real hard to switch them out. And so you switch it out. But actually, it's really probably worse than that. It's not just the people that are cheating. It becomes clear in chapter 2 that it's the priests that have set up the system. And maybe there was a direct quid pro quo, a kickback of, you know, if I let you get this animal through, like if I verify that this diseased animal is an acceptable sacrifice, you're going to give me a bigger cut from it. I mean, literally, a cut of the meat. I'm going to take some of it. And that's one of the ways God provided for his priests. I'm going to let this slide because you and I will both benefit from the arrangement. I mean, after all, it's only God who will be cheated. God, when when speaking to the priests then in chapter 2, he says, and now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. The priests meant to bless the people of God. Their blessings have now become curses. God himself curses the priests. Verse 3 then gives us this horrific image. I mean, if you thought the work of a a priest was bad in, in killing an animal, in blood being poured out and sprinkled on the altar, I mean, then then look at verse 3, what God says he will do. He gives us this disgusting image so that we understand how horrifying their sin is. He says, because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival offerings, and you will be carried off with it. That's the internal organs that you cut out of the, off, of the, the animal. The parts that can't be offered in sacrifice to God because they are unclean, because they are filled with excrement. The bloody, bleepity mess of the innards of this animal is what's going to be spread on your faces. The parts of the animal that that you can't even put on the altar, what happens to these pieces? They get taken outside of the city, not just out of the temple. You have to leave the city and take them to the dung heap where they can be disposed of. 
God's going to take that and spread it on the faces of the descendants of his priests. God is saying, you will be removed from office in utter disgrace. It's an image of horror and filth. Because what were the priests meant to do? They were not those that that brought curses. They were meant to bring blessing. God describes his covenant with Levi. Levi, one of the 12 of the grandsons of Abraham, one of the tribes, the tribe set apart through Moses and his brother Aaron to be the priests. God says, I made a covenant with Levi. Not at the time of Levi, but at the time of Aaron. Verse 4 of chapter 2, you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. God himself entered into relationship. God made promises, but then there were obligations upon the priests. When God when God provided a path of reconciliation, then the priests had to respond in obedience. What was his covenant? Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. My covenant with him was with him, a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him. I gave life and peace to my people through the priests. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. Now remember, if you go back and read the whole story of Aaron, it's not that God picked Aaron because he's this really great guy who never does stuff wrong. I mean, remember the giant golden calf? It's that God, in providing reconciliation for his priest, enters into a covenant with his people, whereby God himself offers them life. God offers them peace. But instead, the priests who are supposed to instruct God's people The priest had the responsibility not only to offer sacrifice, but to teach the people of God. The priests who ought to be the ones in verse 7 to preserve knowledge, the ones who, who, to whom men could turn to find instruction, because the priests were messengers of God. And yet verse 8 tells us that the priests were the ones who caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty, so I have caused you to be despised and humiliated. The priests were meant to be mediators who through sacrifice could provide atonement from God for the people, but they have destroyed that hope. Things are so bad that it would be better to shut the system down. Close the temple doors. Stop your empty sacrifices. Because Malachi is pleading for a better priest, a true and pure sacrifice. And the tragedy is, as we turn the pages, there are blank pages after Malachi. For more than 400 years, there will be silence. God holds the people to account. The sacrifices are empty and trivial because of the sin of God's people. We need a better priest. And yet when God speaks again, that's exactly what he offers to us. His own son, our savior, the perfect mediator, the one who can stand before God in purity, the one who is himself a perfect sacrifice. And so the author of Hebrews gives us a summary. You can flip there if you'd like, toward the very back of your Bible, Hebrews chapter 7. 
a reminder that, that the Old Testament priesthood was always temporary. At some point, God was going to shut the temple doors because their sacrifices couldn't provide atonement forever. It had to happen day by day because they themselves were sinners. And so God was always waiting for a better high priest. The Old Testament Malachi was pointing us forward to the ministry of Jesus. And so in Hebrews chapter 7, we read that such a high priest meets our need. This is Hebrews 7 verse 26. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Not a high priest that leads us astray, but one who is perfect, one who is set apart above even the heavens itself. He comes not to minister merely in, a, in an earthly temple, but he comes from heaven. Verse 27 of Hebrews 7, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. When we read Malachi and we cry out for a priest who is worthy, for a sacrifice to atone for our sins, we find it in Jesus our Savior, the one who is holy, blameless, and pure. And so put your trust in Jesus today. Stop trusting yourself. See his greatness and worth and fall at his feet to give him praise. When you understand his sacrifice, then you can no longer trust in your own goodness, but rely upon his. You no longer expect that, that you can make yourself worthy before God, but you see yourself as unworthy and find in Jesus forgiveness for your sins. He is your sacrifice. And like the priests of Malachi who were shamed, who had to be led outside the city, where was your Savior taken? He was not sacrificed in the temple courts. He was sacrificed outside the walls of the city, bearing the shame of your sin and mine. He was defiled for your sake. And so turn and worship Jesus. He is worthy of your praise. He's worthy of your obedience. He deserves your time and attention. He, he deserves your treasure and your wealth. Jesus, the Savior, the rescuer, the priest, the sacrifice for you. Because one of the primary functions of a priest was to bless the people of God. At the center of, of Aaron's ministry were words of blessing, a ministry of blessing. We hear the words in our worship services. We find them in Numbers chapter 6, where the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. The ministry of the priests is to make great the name of God and to pour out the blessing of God, his favor and grace, his love and mercy upon the people of God. But because of the sins of the priests, 
and the guilt of the people, what should have been a blessing, became a curse. But in Jesus, the pure priest, the perfect sacrifice, we can again hear the words of Aaron, the covenant with Levi spoken over us, the Lord bless you and keep you. We find in Jesus the forgiveness of sins, the presence of the Lord Almighty, the grace of God, his favor poured out upon us. At the beginning of the pandemic last year, worship leaders released a song based on the priestly blessing. The blessing the priests of Malachi should have been giving to the people. The song was actually first sung in a worship service on March 1st, which was just days, really, before everything shut down. But as people looked for hope in the midst of sorrow, that song began to be shared online. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. A song that choirs around the world began to sing and share. Now, because they're choirs, they couldn't do it together, so they each recorded their own faces. And then they were edited together. Blessings that, that were then shared with cities around the world, Pittsburgh and London and New York City. For our family, it became a song that we sang at my, at my mom's bedside. One day after her death, Laura and I were driving to my dad's house to help him pack and get ready, and the song came on. And so we started to sing. Okay, singing is not the right word. I started weeping. Now, thankfully, we were at the traffic light there at the library on Folk Road about to turn into the neighborhood, and so I just stopped. Because in the sorrows and tragedies of life, I have the blessing of Jesus the Savior. I mean, I don't want to downplay the beauty of the song, but the greatness of a scripture song is that it sings scripture over you. I mean, the, the reason that, that the song is so powerful is that they are the very words of God spoken to us by Jesus, the great high priest. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And so this song becomes a song of hope, a song that my niece sang at my mother's memorial service. In Christ, we have the blessing of God, not because we are worthy, but because he is worthy. Not because we have offered pure sacrifices, but because he is our pure sacrifice. Today, we have curses turned to blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. Father, we give you praise for the grace and mercy that we find in Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we thank you that when, when we feel overwhelmed by the, the weight of our sin, by the weight of sin in this world, by death itself that we find in you forgiveness and hope. Lord, I pray that in your word, as we see the failure of the Old Testament priests, that even there we can see the greatness of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, for those who have not yet found hope in Jesus, 
I pray that in having heard your word read, having heard it preached, having heard it sung by your people and announced in worship, that those who do not yet believe would turn from sin, putting their trust in Jesus, finding salvation in him alone. Lord, make us a people who, who show you your worth, who declare your praises to the nations, who let others see the depth of your love for us. So, Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen.